The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Uh, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, I am joined today by an old friend of mine, uh, Neil Wu Becker. So Great. thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, and Neil is the Chief Marketing Officer at, uh, am I saying it right, Behavox? That's right, Behavox. Uh, first yeah. time, Ed. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got his uh, bachelor's degree from UC Davis. Uh, born in Taiwan and lives in Danville, California, East Bay. That's right. Married with twin girls. That had to be a, a big undertaking, bringing two girls home at the same time. Yes, it was. There's many stories on that one. You're going to need five podcasts for that <laughs> one. <probably. laughs> and they also have a golden doodle named Barney. That's right. No shedding. No shedding. Yep, that's why we got it. Uh, we're Wife's looking, decision. We're looking for a, a dog right now because I got little Johnny's at home. He's two and a half years old, and uh, he needs a dog of some sort because he just loves animals. We got a cat right now, but there's like there, there's probably cat hair on this jacket. <laughs> no um, disrespect to cats, but you got to have a dog when you're a kid. That's for sure. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, we've been talking about golden doodles. So tell me about bringing home twin girls. Did you guys know you were having twins ahead of time? We did not. Um, so this is the story. So I can't remember what week it was, but there's a certain point in time when you have kids, you can find out the sex or the gender. So when you go, um, actually, it was pre that. Uh, I remember going in, and I can't remember. It was one of the first several weeks into my wife's pregnancy, and, and they put the wand on the belly, and you start seeing the heartbeat. So you're really excited. And then they say, well, wait a second. There's two heartbeats. And that's when... when your world immediately explodes into, oh my Lord. And then a few weeks later, you find out the gender. And uh, the story behind that one really quick is, uh, and, and this is probably, I'm gonna get crucified for saying this publicly, but um, you know, my wife and I had said, we are not going to find out the, the gender. We wanna be able to proclaim it after 40 weeks at the hospital, it's a boy or it's a girl. <laughs> so um, the doctor just basically asked us week 15 or whatever it was, hey, uh, we can find out the sex right now. Do you wanna know? And we just looked at each other and like just capitulated said, sure, okay. And then uh, first first um, baby, right? says, you ready for the first one? So there's like this this dramatic, melodramatic uh, silence. And, and I said, yeah. And my wife says, yeah, girl. And we said, oh, I was so excited, sincerely. And then I, I won't lie, in my mind, I think, oh gosh, the next one's got to be a boy. Come on, <laughs> like I, I've always wanted, but let's, 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 let's try to go 50-50 on this. And uh, dramatic silence. You ready for the second one? I said, yes. And I'm putting my head down like, it's gotta be a boy, right? And then he says, girl. And I remember without even thinking, um, rearing my head back saying, oh, I've gotta pay for two weddings. And my, <laughs> and my um, immediately I see four eyes, whoosh, whoosh, like I look to the right and my wife and the doctor are both looking at me like, are you kidding me? You're gonna say that, like, that is terrible. What are you, what are you thinking? So immediately I, I became more diplomatic after that. But those are my two stories about twins. Bringing them home was obviously awesome and a joy. You're mentally prepared at that point. But those were the two milestones, stepping stones I had to get through by the time they were born. 
So how much did you sleep that first year? Uh, more than my wife, relatively speaking. But uh, we were lucky. They were sleeping by three and a half to four weeks. Uh, uh, three and a half to four months. Yeah. But that first quarter was uh, zombie land. Yeah. Uh, and you don't realize how much you can go without sleep based on adrenaline, without getting sick per se. Yeah. Um, just based on your sheer happiness. But it's it's basically as soon as you feed one, you don't get to go to sleep. You feed the second one, then the next one wakes up, and it's just ping ponging for the first month back and forth for four or five weeks. Yeah, That's we had uh, we got pretty lucky too. We only had one kid, and he's a boy. Yeah, um, but uh, brought Johnny home, and within I don't know a month or something like that, he was asleep by six o'clock at night and sleeping until six thirty seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, come that, on. That's fine. Oh, let me great. let me say one thing, John. I mean, with all due respect, the biggest blessing of my life has been having girls. Oh yeah, I, I think it's it's actually better that I did personally, um, and then for our family, obviously, we're thrilled with it. But I will say, Barney, my dog. If you get a dog, then it's going to happen all over again. I forgot about that when I was a kid because they're going to wake up at three in the morning. They sleep two, three, four hours when they're puppies, and you're not going to get much sleep. So we had flashbacks, just to connect dots. Now you and I. <laughs> We met playing basketball at Club Sport in San Ramon. Correct. Uh, now, of course, during COVID, there's no basketball. Um, but uh, uh, I smile because that was some great times in my life. Um, just the, the guys that were back there, uh, Barnum, Roger, Mike McGraw. I mean, it just the, the, there's 30 people that come to mind, yeah. and you're one of them. They're just like just, this great group of guys back there that we played basketball together. That was actually a changing point in my life was hmm. meeting that group of people. Okay. You know, because it was just, um, I started the company, my company, IT Avalon, after I had moved out uh, of San Ramon and Danville. Uh, but there was really a big changing point. It was those all those positive, very smart um mm people that were very savvy businessmen mm. um it was just a great place for me to be around um before covid hit were you still playing basketball out there yeah and uh i'll play until my body tells me not to but um you know i'll say one quick thing on that note i, I share the same enthusiasm you do for that group uh basketball is a whole nother podcast we could geek out on at another time but for me it is one of the the lifebloods of my life. And if you take it away from me, I'll just, I'll shrivel, right? I, I have to I have to have basketball as, as part of my, my diet, if you will. And part of it is very sociological because you can take anyone, could be tall, short, old, young, rich, poor, and put them together. And all of the, the societal issues that we deal with are gone. It's right. the one safe ground where everyone just come in and play. And what I've noticed, you play, I played in every court indoor and outdoor in the bay area probably we joined leagues in east palo alto berkeley peninsula san jose places we probably shouldn't even played but um to come full circle and then play where where you're bringing up in club sport san ramon at the time of our lives respectively was a good timing because it's a very classy group it's a very uh you could tell they were raised right so there's basketball plus life whereas maybe in some of the previous places i played it was just basketball yeah so I, I totally echo what you said. Yeah, I was. Uh, you're speaking of all ages. Um, yep. I remember Doc would be out there yeah. running. That, like <laughs> that's right. Gotta be 85 years that's old right. or something like that. At least you know. And I, I was. Least. I was mostly on the B um, B court. 
They had B court and A court. Every once in a while, I would go over and play the A court at the end of the day or something. So I'm sure. just not that good of a basketball player. But Being too humble. getting out there and running, it didn't matter. And Doc would be out there at 85 yeah. years old or whatever he yeah. was and That's going right. up and down. And That's right. he shot three-pointers like nobody's business. That's right. You know, and That's it was right. just it was just a great place to be, and uh, it just makes me smile thinking about it. Yeah, really good memories. In fact, um, I, I'll say this: my my first memory of Doc was I was an idiot. Uh, is my first memory because um, I tried to back him down in the post, and you don't do that to to a guy who's like at least two and a half times old. And and I remember it was either to your point, it was Roger. Or Matt Zaki, someone pulled me and said, hey, you, you, you have to be a little smart about that here. And um, that was my initiation socially into that group. Like, uh, it's a class game, too. It's not just let's go beat each other up right. and, and make it a contact sport. And I've, I always respected him for being out there, to your point. I got into a couple of altercations with people, which <laughs> gave, gave me the nickname Angry John. <laughs> Angry John. Wait, wait, who, who gave you that nickname? I can't remember... If it was, I didn't know about that part. Uh, it, it didn't. Get, I remember the altercations, it but not the it nickname. It didn't get uh, uh, thrown around that much. <laughs> um, but uh, there was a couple of them, and it, I became really good friends with all those guys yeah. that I got into altercations yeah. with because yeah. it, it was nothing. Yeah. No, no fisticuffs or nothing. It was just That's like right. get right. off me, you know. Right. And I'm a big dude, so That's it's right. just like when I'm when I'm bumping and hitting somebody down low. That's right. It takes a little bit of a, a hit, you know. But when I'm up against like a McGraw or a Roger or somebody like that, really knows what they're doing. You know, they they welcome it. Yeah. You know? I, I'll say this, uh, because you're being too humble about your, your skill set on the court. Um, being that when I would play with you, my memory of playing with you was, um, I love to to bang in the paint, but I'm just not gifted with 7 foot 250 pound size. So um, I whenever you were on the court, I would just play small forward. And when you were off the court, then I would try to play power forward. But there's a there's a Darwinistic, Darwinistic uh, notion in my mind, like uh, you pick and choose your battles. So I do remember you being out there and being feisty, but that's a good thing. Yeah, it was. Uh, I just had a blast. And when I started playing basketball there, I'd really not played basketball before in my life. I see. It was one of those things where I got out there and had no clue what I was doing. And uh, but you like to shoot the three. I love I to shoot that. the three. And uh, I remember I had one game in particular where I made every three and the game was over within about three minutes. I and vaguely recall this. It was I do recall ridiculous. This. I do recall that. I should have just There's stopped like right then yeah. and walked off. Yeah. <laughs> and this is pre-Steph Curry. This is when people just kind of shot threes. So I do recall that era. Yeah. So um, when did you move to the U.S.? Because I know you were born in Taiwan. Yeah, I, I, I was here about two years old. Uh, and, and just to be transparent, the backstory is, uh, I was adopted when I was two weeks old. So, uh, my, my, um, I'm, despite my name, um, part of my name, I'm not German, uh, or even Irish, uh, but I was, uh, adopted by Sullivans and Beckers who were, who were Americans, um, stationed in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam War. So they were stationed in Taiwan. Um, and, uh, the backstory is, this is 1972, so date me in terms of my age. But I was born in February in 1972. This is the same month Richard Nixon visited Mao in China and started to defrost U.S.-China relations, which, as of today, they're refrosted. But the, the, the point is, is they were very utopian at that time and say, you know, we're going to do our part um, to do Pan-Pacific, so we're going to adopt someone from Chinese heritage. So they had a, a biological son, my younger brother, Todd, while they were over there. And he'll always joke saying, yeah, I was born in Taiwan, and he's ca Caucasian as can be, and he say, yeah, right. But it's actually <laughs> true. 
Um, but they, they adopted me when I was two weeks old. And then by two years old, we were in Northern California after my dad got out of the service. That's so basically how, the backstory. When, um, when you got adopted, mm. um, were you uh, given up by your parents? Or how, how did <clears throat> how'd that whole thing go down? This is a movie. Um, but uh, in a very abbreviated terms, um, my parents were too young. My birth parents were too young. Uh, and, um, so they, they could have chosen a lot of things, which I'll always respect them for not, which is abortion or other, other things. But they decided to put me up for adoption, um, in a Christian based, uh, organization called the mustard seed. And, um, they did it conscientiously knowing that most likely if we did get adopted, it would be, if I did get adopted, it would be by someone in the United States. Because at that time, you're thinking the U.S. is the place to go, okay, to, to have a good life if we can't give that person a good life. So sure enough, um, I, I w within two weeks, uh, I don't even think I was there very long. Um, I was chosen, and the rest is history in the U.S. side. But uh, when I was 26, I, I went back with a, a really good friend who was also from Taiwan. Because you, you wonder who you are. Like, is your birthday really your birthday? Are you really Chinese? Like, what's your health history is? Like, what your roots are? Where you came from? And if you're 25, 26 years old, don't don't know that, um, that 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 could sting you for a while, right? And it had for my whole life. So we went back, and in two weeks, the last day, two hours before my flight at the airport, I found my birth mother in person. It, there's a whole soap opera behind it, John. And then, how, how did you find her? Oh, okay. Uh, I'll just say this: um, at the time, I was in journalism. So I wasn't doing marketing like I'm doing today. <clears throat> so I grew up as a mass communications guy out of school. So when I went there, I was already working for uh, the San Francisco Chronicle here and uh, in their sports department. So I went over there and journalists take care of their own. So we basically did a PR blitz, uh, radio, TV, uh, all the major newspapers. Taiwan is a small island nation to where, unlike the U.S., like you go to, say, the San Francisco Chronicle, only the Northern Californians are going to read that not the whole country. Taiwan, mm -hmm. the national papers are the national papers, and they had several of them. So we would blitz all of them, go on TV, go on radio, cover the whole island. And then I had a couple agents that were friends that were basically trying to weed out the people who were just trying to get money. Um, got a marriage proposal, got like all sorts of wacky stuff happening, wanting to do blood tests, everything for DNA. Uh, but that we set that up, and over two weeks, a lot of people will come in and you're literally sitting in a hospital next to someone saying, are you really my mother? And only the blood will tell, right? Um, and then uh, the, the long story short was a, a lady called in um, pretending to be uh, the sister of who she thought was my mother and said we should meet, very covert, very nervous. Her, her, her voice was cracking and trembling on the phone. And we eventually met at the airport two hours before my flight, and it ended up being her. Um, and there's a whole backstory behind it, but I'll just say there were actresses involved. There were radio celebrities, agents, everyone helping me. So I will never forget the graciousness of that country. Um, but I did promise I would never commercialize it. Uh, I won't lie. There were movie requests, book requests. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, that I actually had to live through this. But the point is, is um, it was the most special point in my life. And I know we'll get to it at the end, but that is what was the catalyst for resetting my perspective on life in general, professionally, publicly, personally, 
with family, friends, and everything, it put everything in context at age 26. So a little probably more than you were asking for, but there's such a soap opera behind it that. No, I when when I when I found out about this, it's one of the uh, it's it's the most interesting part. You've got a lot of interesting parts about you. Mm. This defines people. Indeed. So my Indeed. my background is <clears throat> my mom is my mom. Um, I found out at about 20 years old that my dad, who raised me, was not my biological father. Wow. And wow. Uh, my father, Interesting. my biological father and that whole family lived 15 miles away from where wow. I lived my whole life. So you feel like a, you feel like a goldfish. Yep. You know, everybody, everybody knows except for you. Yeah. So I, I understand it totally what you're talking about. It's like, do they actually care about me? That's right. Why would somebody give me up? That's you know, right. That kind of stuff. That's right. And it drives you nuts. That's right. You know, so uh, everybody knows about me that I've been sober for six and a half years. It's, it, it was a driving force behind me doing uh, self-destructive things like mm. drinking too much, like gotcha. all the different things I did. Gotcha. When I got into um, sobriety when I got my shit together, um, one of the things I had to do was face all that stuff from my past. And at 42 years old, I met my biological father. Mm. My dad who raised me had since passed away. I see, I see. And it was just amazing to be able to look at this guy who I look exactly like. Interesting. In Chicago, and just sit there and have this conversation. And it, This it, was all in Chicago, not California. This was in Chicago. I went back to Illinois to meet him. Interesting. And you sit there across the table and just go, my God. That's right. 42 years, we haven't sat and talked to each other as father and son. You know, and you look at back, you look back at all the things, all the things that uh, went down. And I had hated this guy mm. for this guy that I didn't know at all mm. since I was 20 some years old mm. because of, you know, whatever reasons, you know, mm. because of fear. And once I had a chance to work with someone within the program that I went through for sobriety and figure out, well, it's nothing to be afraid of. Mm. You need to face it. You need to figure this stuff That's out. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Then you can move on with your life. That's right. And That's it, was, right. it was pretty amazing because my perspective completely changed because what I did when I sat with that guy and sat with my father is looked at him and all I could think about was all of the times, mostly now that I have a two-year-old at home, mm. that I'm with every day of my life yep. and I would not miss a second of yep. his life. Yep. I feel sorry for all the moments that he missed mm -hmm. of me growing up. Mm -hmm. And I'm mm -hmm. so thankful, just like you might be for your parents, yeah. of making the right choice because he was out of control as a drunk. I see. And did the right thing by saying, I'm not the right person to raise this kid. I see. And now we can have a relationship as we're both adults. He was ready at that point, yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it, it's such an amazing thing. When, when I read that about your background, I was like, oh, this is amazing. We can I mean, relate. The, the, the story there, um, you know, I, I, I could go on and on because that is something that is really the reason that probably you're in the position you're in and I'm in the position I am because those are driving things that are bigger That's than right. just a position. That's right. Bigger than a job. That's right. You know, because my, my, my true ambition behind doing this podcast and doing the things that I do in my life is to help other people. I see. Because all of these angels had to line up in the right way. That's right. For you and I to be sitting here talking to each other right now. 
Yeah, and I would. I would. That's. A, I didn't know that about you, John. I, I mean, I appreciate you uh, reciprocating and saying saying what you've gone through because uh, <clears throat> I, b I believe everyone has a story. You and I played ball, banged on each other at the gym for years. Didn't even know that about each other, obviously. Um, in fact, a lot of people just think I'm half. They say you don't look half, but you must be half. And and then you look beneath the surface. Everyone has a story. You do as well. Um, I'm excited for you. For the for the second half of your life, um, because uh, you know I try to get out to Asia myself once a year pre-COVID, whether it's for work or anything. I will go through Taiwan on the way back on purpose right. just to see them. But um, uh, I, I'll say that it resets everything in your life about what is important uh, and about how you maintain focus. So I'll say one thing: I agree with you 100%. The driver in my life is not money; it's not materialism. It's not uh, um, status or job or anything professionally. It is at the at its atomic unit. The core is making sure your family's proud. That's it. You're representing your family. And for 26 years, I didn't know who I was representing, aside from my American family. And then when you find that out doubly, it's everything I do will reflect the name that is on my driver's license, birth certificate, or my business card, or what have you. And uh, I don't believe there's any room for mediocrity in our life. I, uh, for me personally, your story is different than mine, but I could argue I shouldn't even be here. I, I, they could have easily made a different decision. I wouldn't be here. We'd never be meeting. So if someone said, you have a second chance, then you start immediately realizing, then you better not be mediocre about it. You better go after it hard, no matter what you do. So that has always been the fuel for me, pre and post learning of my birth family. You know, I met my father shortly after. A birth father as well um and uh you know all is good right now but things have a way of my american mom said it best she goes things will always work out neil she's very utopian right things will always work out neil and it's very true to this <laughs> point um halfway through my life i've never never seen um that thesis of hers broken so anyway it's so funny because my mom and zinc she has told me my whole life It'll all be okay. Now, she, <laughs> she says the she, same thing. She, she's a Christian oh, woman. Mom's gonna say that. She's man. a Christian. Her and my grandmother Reva, um, they're they're both just say that everything's gonna be okay. That's cool. You know, it's like when I got into recovery, and recovery is all about it's all gonna be okay. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. live too much in the past. Yeah, day at don't, a time. Yeah, don't yeah one day at a time. Yeah. Don't don't go into the future. Just live for today. Mm -hmm. Today is all that matters because tomorrow's not promised. Mm -hmm. You know, just do the next right thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to get into recovery to figure that stuff out, but my mom and my grandma been telling me that my whole life. At the end of the day, they're usually the right right uh, people to listen to. Exactly. So where um, your mom and dad who raised you, your American parents, um, are they still alive? Uh, my father is. Um, unfortunately, my mother uh, passed away earlier this year. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, and she passed away, uh, uh, had brain cancer. Oh. Um, so very unexpected. So this year, in many ways for everyone, has been the worst year of people's lives. Uh, that's the reason why it's been the worst year of my life. Right. Um, but my father's still alive. Uh, and obviously all the families on my maternal and paternal side here in the U.S. are all all good, too. I'm so sorry about the loss of your mom. Well, I, I, I appreciate, it. appreciate well, it. What was her name? Terry. Terry. Yeah. So... so uh, would Terry say you were a good student? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let me let me um, 
give you a preamble on that answer by saying she was a, a hardcore educator. Okay. Principal, kindergarten teacher primarily, county administrator in Santa Clara County. Uh, did, did the whole gamut. Um, and I would hope that she would say that, yeah, uh, I was a good student. And in fact, I would argue that if I wasn't, um, that wouldn't have fit the brand of the family, which was very education driven. Uh, so I hope I made her proud. You would have to ask her when we when we're up there with the angels. Yeah. So what was your uh, what was your favorite subject uh, going through school? So on the geeky side, it was geography, which wasn't always the biggest thing. Like if we want to get in a state capitals thing or a, a countries and how to spell it right type of contest, I would geek out on geeky stuff like that. But I would say usually math and um, English. Uh, I was an English major in college, so my favorite passion was writing, and. Uh, um, that's why I got into journalism on the sports writing side and all that later on. Um, so my fundamental passion, I guess, that that I don't have to, to uh, I guess, push myself to like doing or do is, is on the um, communication writing and English major side. So did you play uh, sports in high school? I did. What was your was basketball your first love or? Ironically, it always has been one of them. Um, uh, I went to a very small high school out in Central Valley, in the San Joaquin Valley. And at the, the, the benefit of that is you can play anything you want. There's no tryouts. So I was good at some sports, and I was awful at others. Um, we talked about football, way too small. Five foot five, 95 pounds freshman year as a running back. That's not a good, good, good idea, right? Um, however, uh, I played football. I played basketball. Uh, played soccer a lot, all K through 12. Uh, and then probably the, the sport I had the most success in in high school is tennis. Okay. Um, and uh, so those were my big four. I loved baseball, but I sucked at hitting. Like uh, I, I would try to eke out a walk. There's no way I could hit very well. Defense was fine. So baseball, I never, I was kind of half okay. But those other four sports were where I concentrated on. Well, I, same way. I, was in, I grew up in a town of 1,500 people in Northwest Illinois. So everybody get to play. Whatever you went out for, you play. Yeah, you right? got to play. Yeah, which but is good. My big ass, the football coach sees me coming up through seventh and eighth grade. He's like, oh, yeah, here we go. Here, here's another zinc. There's my you left know? tackle. I, I was huge, and I went out, and I was just horrible. I mean, just it. <laughs> was it, it footwork, or was it conditioning? I was, technique, I was afraid of hitting people, and I was afraid of getting hit. The gotcha. two worst things gotcha. for a football player. Gotcha. You know, gotcha. I was a big mama's boy, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And uh, I'll never forget. So my first... Um, practice got off the bus and uh, my older cousin Troy Zink he was a tough ass hmm. kind of a jerk too but uh, <laughs> I was in the back of the bus and got off the bus and they were running the first lap around to warm up Yeah, and I was getting off there as they were coming around and he just leveled me just blindsided you blindsided me I'm laying on the ground uh, I, I'm embarrassed to say it. I, I, as a freshman, I sat there and I started crying. <laughs> the worst, dude. And it, that pretty much was uh, the way I played all four years. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to have a podcast here in a couple months of of uh, my junior year of high school. We had the best um, best record ever for Mount Carroll High School, and we're going to have a bunch of those guys on That's the cool. podcast. That's cool. But I, I stood on the sideline. I was a 300-pound cheerleader, <laughs> and I was okay with it. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. it's just one of those things where I knew who I was. Yeah. I was a musician. Yeah, You know, okay, it's just okay. like that, that's what I did when it okay. came to 
uh, when it came to um, playing music and singing, it comes I was all yeah. about it. You know, but when it came to football, I was just like, uh, my, that was the other thing my mom always said is when you go out for something, you're going to play and you're not going to quit the team. You're going to stick with it until the end. I don't mm-hmm. care what else mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was uh, so many things I learned from my mother. You know, strong women. Totally. Big part of my totally. life. Totally. So for you, um, I know you're a big Warriors fan. I am. Um, what What are the other teams that you follow around the Bay Area? Well, um, uh, my 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 portfolio is uh, the Golden State Warriors, the San Francisco Giants, and now the Las Vegas Raiders. So I grew up in an East East Bay uh, family primarily. So the Raiders versus 49ers was a big deal. Um, and then being, a, I would argue, being a Warriors uh, up until lately and a Raiders fan is probably the hardest job in all the sports because of just the disappointment. Um, and now I fear we're heading that direction again after watching last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I shouldn't laugh, but uh, that did not look good against the Brooklyn Nets. I'm I'll a Vikings fan. Yeah. Every year, man. It's just like, yeah. Okay. You're on. right in the middle. We, we, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Pay Kirk Cousins $84 million just to. I don't think that was a good move. But no, it was a horrible move. Yeah. I was actually, I was, I went to um, the Minneapolis Miracle game where Diggs caught that last oh, second. Yes. I, yes. Was at, I was in Minneapolis at that new stadium to watch that catch. And it was just like. So was, you were in the stadium? I was in the stadium wow. watching it. Um, cause Have I, you ever heard a stadium louder? Oh, no. It was so I, I, loud. I it was amazing. And uh, Johnny Randall, uh, one of the old uh, yeah. defensive, defensive ends, ends yeah. he was up there. He blew the horn before it. Before it, it was just amazing. It was wow. such a great and it, talk about ups and downs of a game because we were up like twenty to nothing against the Saints. Yeah. So at halftime, we're all like, "Yeah, best day ever!" Right? And then Drew Brees picks us apart the yeah. second half. Yeah. And it went from being the happiest place on earth to the like Scariest, we just lost. Depressing. We just yeah. lost. Yeah. There's this kid named Colton sitting in front of me with his dad. And Colton's still sitting there doing the skull chant while the rest of us are going, Colton, just shut up. We're done. We lost. It's <laughs> over. And sure enough, Diggs catches it, runs in. I see grown men crying. Wow. You know, and that, that's the greatest thing about, about professional sports. sports. And totally. the, it's just like when you get that many people just all feeling the same thing. Yeah. Oh my God, it was so yeah. moving. Yeah. You know, and then they come out and they lose the Eagles the next week, and we get trounced. <laughs> yeah. How how did you become a Vikings fan if you're a Chicago boy? I moved to Minneapolis with my first wife. I see. I was up there for twelve years. Okay, okay. Before um, I moved out to California. So, do you like the Bears? And I the don't. Bulls and all? You never really had an affinity. No, I, uh, the rest of my family are Bears and Packers fans. I see. That doesn't mix either. They have okay. no idea what they're doing. It's Vikings. They baby. have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> I hear you. No, I got. I wasn't like I said before. I was a musician, and uh, I would be playing until you know two o'clock in the morning. Wow. I would get home and not watch football at all the next day, and then I moved to Minneapolis. And a friend of mine, Tim Welsh, took me to my first Vikings game. I told you Robert Smith was on the podcast. Sure. sure. Uh, it was Randy Moss's rookie season. Oh. He took me to a game. It was Chris Carter, Randy Moss, Johnny Randall. That team was so amazing. That yeah. was my first year yeah. going. That was a good squad. And I just fell in love. Okay. You know, that, that, that explains it all. That explains it all. The yeah. timing of it. So as a sports writer, you know, that was, that was what you went into first out of school, right? Correct. So 
did did you actually go out and uh, interview and talk with the athletes themselves, or what, what kind of sports running did you do? I did. Um, it is for a sports geek like me. It was uh, no disrespect to any job I've had, but it is the most fun job set of jobs I've ever had in my life. Um, so yes, I did. I, I did everything. I did writing, editing, web, magazine, newspaper, daily newspapers, both in New York and in the Bay Area, Oakland and San Francisco, respectively. Um, but yeah, uh, I did NBA, NFL, um, not much baseball, and a lot of college sports. And you move up through the ranks through high school. Uh, you, you have to cover the preps. But uh, because I was in California, in the Bay Area, a lot of the West Coast work would fall to me too. So for example, I, I used to freelance for Slam Magazine. When you and I first met, I was actually writing for Slam Magazine still. Okay. And then the kids came, I said, okay, we need to maybe chill out a little bit on that. I don't have enough time. But uh, they're all based in New York. So anything west of the Mississippi, hey, we need you to do something with the Blazers or Lakers or the Kings or the Warriors. I say, sure. They don't have to fly anyone out. I'll just handle that. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a fun ride. But I also realized growing up in Silicon Valley that it may not be sustainable. And there's other opportunities too. Who was the biggest celebrity athlete that you met that kind of blew your mind? Can I say three of them? Sure. I would say Jerry Rice, Kevin Garnett, and Jason Kidd. And uh, Jason Kidd was over the phone. Kevin Garnett was in the locker room. And Jerry Rice was also on the phone. Um, and they're all for completely different stories, different, different conversations. But what struck me about all three, the reason why I named three of them is the profound uh, thought process that they have as human beings, um, not just as athletes, that you never see covered by transactional journalists. So in other words, they actually can think deep. They actually care about family. They actually care about certain things. It's not just points per game or yak or any of those types of stats. So Jerry Rice was a conversation about his, uh, his uh, nephew. His name is Darius Rice, played, played basketball at University of Miami. And that was really what the story was about, was what does Uncle Jerry think about him, um, especially when he used to play in the, in, in the, in the front yard or on the, on, the, on the driveway playing ball one-on-one -on -one when he was little. And the funny story, just I'll say real quick, is someone answered the phone. I don't know if it's a maid or a service. Some, someone answers the phone. It was a lady. And I explained what I'm trying to get to because uh, you don't normally call his house. And then she goes, yeah, just a second. I'll, I'll, I'll go get him. Well, I must have sat on the phone for at least five to seven minutes. And I'm thinking, this must be the biggest house for him to get from one side to over to this <laughs> phone. Because in my house, I'd be there in 30 seconds. Right. Assuming I'm going to do this call, even if I'm going to hang up on the guy. Yeah. And he, and he was very defensive at first, like, what do you want? And when I told him, immediately, like, you could see the defense mechanism evaporate. So, oh, let me tell you about this kid. When he was four, we did this. When he was eight, I would take him out and do this. His uncle's like this. My brother, we do this. We used to catch bricks in Mississippi doing this. And you get way more than you bargain for if you just have a genuine conversation. Right. Kind of like what you and I are doing today. We, we didn't know about each other as much as we do now. But Garnett and kid, very similar style conversations sports plus versus just about sports they completely melt down and they 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 talk to you as humans which uh for me sociologically was always fascinating because they're depicted so differently in ads and tv and by the broadcasters all that well kg i mean that that was minneapolis i mean that that, that was the that was the boy that's true so you would <laughs> yeah, like wait, him they, too. They, they they loved him I, I wasn't a big fan 
but I, it, he was everywhere. That's he, right. he was like LeBron was to Ohio. That's right. You know, That's it was just point. like he he was the guy. He'd come up there and go wham and smack the <laughs> stuff together in front of the um, the guys at the uh, uh, desk. Yeah, I mean it was it was always yeah. it just always had a smile on his he had face. A good he personality, was, great personality. Yep. Yep. So you talked before you've got a sibling. Um, do you know if you had any other siblings in uh, Taiwan? I do. Yeah. So I have two younger brothers here in in the U.S. Um, the oldest of three boys. Um, we're all two years apart. Two four uh, for me. And then um, in Taiwan, so my my birth parents never married, and um, depending on who watches this, I can neither confirm nor deny that they wanted to. Okay, um, that stays within the family, but due to the soap opera nature um, and the forces that be, they were never allowed to um, after uh, I was born. So they they went off and had their own families. My father to this day. I can neither confirm nor deny, always had uh, my birth mother as his number one love. So he was divorced within five years, but he had two girls. And then um, uh, my birth mother remains married, and she also had two girls as well. Uh, so I have four half-sisters, um, both in Taiwan, and, and uh, one of them lives in Seattle. One of them lives in Vancouver, British Columbia as well, respectively. But we're a Pacific Rim family. So yeah. girls run in the blood. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I do see a pattern here. Yeah. Now, you, you and I, we talked about it a second ago. We, we, we have something in common. That's a strong, strong mother. Yes. Um, yes. Now, you would uh, talk to me prior to this interview, and I had asked you, you know, who, who kind of that person was in your life who was the biggest influencer. And yeah. You said it was mother. Without a doubt. I mean, I mean, most people will usually say that answer. But to add color, I would say, um, you know, I gave you a little bit of her utopian side when she and my dad made a decision to adopt me. They didn't have to. There's no law saying you have to do that, right? And it's not like they were made of money either at that time. So um, she, I, I would say, stands out for two reasons, because she's got the biggest heart I've ever seen any human have. Um, and the world needs more people like her right now, I would argue. Uh, and so it, was, so it was poor timing for her to depart it uh, this year when she did. Um, but she also, remember how I was telling you about her um, passion as an educator? Uh, she was ferocious in terms of making sure everyone had a chance. Okay. Now, if you blow that chance, that's on you. But I'm going to give you a chance to uh, learn Spanish or to learn this skill or to study this harder. And she was a bilingual teacher. So she was, I think, one of the first. I can't validate this, but she was definitely, if not the first, one of the first growing up out there in the Central Valley to actually implement ESL, English as a Second Language, with Spanish, uh, where it wasn't just teaching Spanish-speaking kids who were immigrating here to speak English, but also English-speaking kids to speak Spanish, to meet each other halfway in the same classroom and bi-directionally give both sets of students the ability to be bilingual. And before it was just, hey, man, you're going to learn English. Speak English or die. All that was common in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and she said, I'm going to do that and then some. And that was her shtick in the Central Valley. So she wrote a book on it, like how to, how to do curriculum for both sides, learning both sides' languages at the time. And uh, she, you know, an Irish, Irish woman, Terry Sullivan, learned Spanish so fluently, both Castilian Spanish for Spain and then Latin American Spanish in terms of accent, that even the parents of the students would tell me, I, if I close my eyes and listen to her speaking, 
she sounds authentic. Now, she spent at least a decade learning this, summers, evenings, and such, over time, but she was absolutely fluent. And I'm an idiot, I'll say that word again, for not taking advantage of learning Spanish fluently with her in my household. I was ah, no thanks. <laughs> I just keep speaking English and playing sports or doing whatever. So uh, that's why I respect her greatly, but she has had a mark on my life more than any coach or any human ever has. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty as far as uh, learning the Spanish. It's not too late. It's not too late, <laughs> especially living in California. It's never too late, for sure, for sure. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing about her because same thing with me. My my mom was the person who stepped up, and it's just like uh, without her, I got nothing. Agreed. You know, and totally agree. I mean, it, it it's kind of a duh. Yeah, it's like if she wouldn't have had you, wouldn't be here. But I'm just saying, it's like you know, when when I didn't have a bowling coach. She was. She'd step up and do it. Yeah. One year I didn't have none of the guys. We didn't have enough guys to be a baseball coach. Mm. She did it. Mm. You know, it's just like they just step up and make shit happen. Yeah. They. They. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cliche, but mothers do rule the world. Um, no matter what men think. Yeah. I, I, I would. I would say that right away. So having daughters, thinking about them as the next generation, learning from my mother already, and also my birth mother in Taiwan. Who who's also wonderful? Obviously, the uh, you just pass it down through generations. We'll be okay as long as you have good moms around. Yeah, and what I'm trying to do with my son is the same thing that my mom and my dad did was know how to treat a woman. That's right, absolutely right. That's right. There's yeah, we haven't even talked about work yet. But you go into a professional environment, and the the amount of chauvinism and such that you'll see is still pretty rampant to where. Uh, I know my mom would be rolling her eyes, but I do know she would say also what she can control would be if I ever catch you doing that, you're in trouble. Well, that's the thing I was just thinking about when you were talking about it. I've been in professional situations before where I watch the things that are going on and it embarrasses the hell out of me. Mm. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in my company. Sure. It won't. My, my wife is the CEO of our company, mm -hmm. you know, we're a woman owned business and everybody is treated correctly equitably yeah there yeah you know and i've seen it go on before i know for a fact that i can look back through my history working and know that my mom would be very very proud of the way that i've acted yeah because it's within the realm of the way she would um expect me to act you know when it comes to treating the opposite sex it's you cause know. and effect yeah you, you were raised that way you will behave that way yeah so she raised you that way yeah yeah Totally agree. So um, back to um, marketing now. <laughs> We're actually going to talk about some of the work you're doing. Okay. So how did okay. you go? You kind of talked about it for a second, but how did you go from sports writing into marketing? And who gave you your first chance to get into marketing? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, this is going to be back in um, 1999. Um I'm growing up in the Bay Area in my 20s at that time. I'm at the San Francisco Chronicle. And all of my friends, who are all ballers, we play ball every Saturday, Sunday, right? This crew that I'm running with, they're all in high tech at the time. Because SiliconValley.com, it's booming now. And we're living in, on the peninsula. So you're seeing all these things sprout up. Oracle's building. Everything's popping up. And they said, Neil, this is a dead-end job, man. You said it yourself. It's eating, it's young. You're working nights and weekends. Come party with us. Have a nine to five. Like, do something, right? And um, the, the, the catalyst was this. 
So they, there's a push pull to it. They pulled me into to this, which we'll get to in a second. But the push um, for me was I go into the sports editor, um, probably incriminating him here, so I'll leave his name out. But I said, hey, look, you know I like the Raiders. So I said, I can cover this team better than anyone, and the guy who's doing it doesn't even know how to spell the names of these players, let alone what the hell they're doing. Okay, I have, Yes, I'm a fan. I've followed them my whole life, but I guarantee you I'll be the best beat writer here. What do I have to do to become that? Um, at the time, I'm, 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 you know, in my 20s. At the time in journalism, at daily newspapers, Chronicle was top 12. But anything in the top 20, top 25, your average age starts at 35 on up. So for me, I'm already a puppy, no matter how good, bad, or ugly I am to them. So you got a lot of 50s and 60s, some 40s. That's the prime age. So this guy leans over his desk. And he says, well, so-and-so has been in the role for a while. And, uh, you know, he's going to be here till he retires. And um, I think uh, after that's done, you know, probably in about 20 or 30 years, we're right around when you're around in your 50s, that's probably when it'll happen. And he was, he was serious because that's just <laughs> what's known. So I'm thinking, okay, wait, so, so I see .com right down the street, get rich. I see all my friends jumping in this and having a blast. On top of that, they're traveling. I get to go to London. I get to go to Paris. I get to go to Tokyo, right? Right. And I said, I'm not going to blow 30 years. I might as well just join the military then. Like, I'm not going to blow 30 years just so I can write for the Raiders when I could do it today. Right. So I said, thank you very much. And then didn't finish the sentence, but in my mind, completed the sentence by saying, thank you very much for saving my life. And then I quit within a quarter. And I made the transition over to a company called Packeteer. Um, actually, I did a dot-com first. And funny story there. It was your classic dot-com that would basically die in a year, year and a half, because they didn't know how to... They were spending money like water. I had three palm trios, if you guys remember those, oh, yeah. in one year. And each one was $450, right? Oh, <laughs> Just to upgrade? I lost it. Hey, yeah, the new one came out. Sure. Three palm trios. Like, how do you let a 27-year-old run a budget, right, for a dot-com? <laughs> so, of course, you're going to run out of uh, money in a year and a half, which we did. So, the first real, I would say, it's a fun job. But the first real uh, corporate job I had was a company called Packeteer, across the street from Apple and Cupertino. And... Um, they that is that is the company that gave me a chance now at the time i had no network there's no such thing as linkedin i'm a sports guy i can't even tell you what a router or data center or a server does so i basically did a pray and spray and i literally sent out approximately 100 resumes just blasted them out because I, I didn't know any better they were the one out of 100 i got 10 interviews out of those 100 nine said no thanks because they want the experience i had nothing on paper um to make that transition but the one that did was packeteer and they did it because they saw the value of the journalism experience for messaging development, Marcom, communication, speed, because it was deadline driven, um, to where they can come in and, and boost content marketing for them, and I, I got the job. The rest I built off of that is history. So Packeteer, which is no more, they were bought by Blue Coat, which was then bought by Symantec, um, is the company I always cherish because they gave me a chance when they shouldn't have. Like on paper, there's no reason logically why they should have hired me. Yeah. But they did. Well, Something for, for people who are watching or listening to this right now, um, you know, my background is I own an IT staffing company. That's right. One of the most important things you said right there is you sent out a hundred resumes to different places. <laughs> you know, you, you can't just pick and choose and pick and choose and pick and choose. If you're looking for something, beggars can't be choosers. That's right. Go out, find something, start somewhere. That's Even right. if it's not the perfect position for matter. you, yeah. go out and find that first job, find that place that'll give you a chance. If you're looking to change your life, go change your life. That's right. 
Don't use excuses why I can't get a job. You can get a job somewhere. Just go out and do it. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's a good segue. Yeah. So um, you became you went into management pretty quickly after you got into marketing, right? Uh, I guess, relatively speaking, I, I um, I'll frame it this way. I did so. So marketing is a vast, even IT, like you know, it's a vast um, mix of right. things, right? You got your apps guys, your security guys, your devs, uh, DevOps, all these different groups in IT. Well, same thing in marketing. So it's a very diverse mix. You'll go your whole career never being an expert in every aspect of marketing. So the aspect that I concentrated on was corporate marketing and corporate communications. So uh, just based on the journalism skills uh, as a foundation. So I did PR specifically. I did Marcom. I did corporate marketing. And then he eventually graduated to, I'm going to run the whole marketing department as I put myself through self-sustained hell weeks of learning product marketing or learning demand generation or learning marketing ops so that I wouldn't run a company into the ground. So um, the management came along incrementally as I would run PR teams or Marcom teams or corporate marketing teams or eventually now all of marketing. Um, and that was commensurate or parallel with uh, the learning I was doing um, along the way to broaden my expertise across the marketing mix. So yeah, they 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 it, it happened. I wouldn't say quickly, but it happened as I learned and broadened my scope. If that makes sense. Yeah. So you you were the director of PR at Cisco. Correct. And you had a pretty large team there, right? Correct. Yeah, we covered about three fifths, two thirds of all of Cisco's business. Yeah. Um, including all the the biggest revenue generating ones and the 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 most competitively fraught ones as well. That's where I grew up, John. That that's where, from a corporate perspective, uh, my uh, idol, if I can use that term, it's a bit flippant from a business leader perspective, is John Chambers. So I was there during the John Chambers time. Okay. I was there the year before he retired. I was there during the 2008 recession when everyone wanted his head. I was there when everything was going well and everything in between. And um, his leadership, management, and ability to motivate and make you run through a wall, I would argue, keep in mind, I've seen football coaches at all levels, basketball coaches at all levels, Kobe, Garnett, Rice, Young, Steve Young, all these people. Whether you wear a jersey or a suit, they have the same DNA about never giving up, being the best, all that. And his standard is of excellence is something I, I think is unparalleled to this day. So if I have a second best CEO I ever work with, great. But I, I, I just don't think I'm ever going to find one as good as him. So I was there at that time, and that's where I grew up. And that's where you learn professional polish, um, professionalism, all of that probably better than I've ever been at uh, learned at any other company. I think uh, yeah, something you just said there. Uh, th th I've kind of ran across with different people I've talked to on the podcast is that you run across a couple people in your career mm. who really are the mentors. That's right. That lead you along to you know <laughs> what you grow into. That's right. And then all of a sudden, when you start running out of those mentors, it's because you become the mentor to other people. And all you're doing is taking those things that someone like Chambers or somebody else, and you become the talking piece for all these things that you've That's learned right. from these other people. That's right. And uh, um, it's kind of what I'm going through right now. And it, it's one of these things where I pinch myself every once in a while when somebody that's working for me says, well, it sounds like you've been in this business for a while. You know, just kind of <laughs> laughing, but it's like, you know, I've been doing it for 25 yeah, years. You have something to share. And it, it all sure. it all comes from other, all these other people who have been nice enough to step up and teach me how to do it because I'm willing to learn. That's right. 
and uh, it's 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 a really fun place to be in um, in my maturity in my career mm-hmm. to sit there and be able to you know make other people proud not just my mom but for sure these for other sure. these other guys and girls that I uh, were, were nice enough to take me under their wing and teach me this business I'm in that's right you know so it's interesting to hear that so right now like we talked about at the beginning you're right now the chief marketing officer at Behavox talk about Behavox a little bit what, what do you guys do sure Behavox was started in 2014 in London. Their corporate headquarters is now in New York. But they're basically a fin- we're a fintech company, a okay. financial tech company for now, uh, that specializes. Um, it's an AI and machine learning driven solution that we have that specializes in rooting out uh, rogue behavior. So on two fronts, both on the HR side, but also on the financial regulatory compliance side. So uh, it will aggregate all the communications of a company and look for patterns that are rogue in terms of signaling potential insider trading, market manipulation, collusion, things that you're just illegally not supposed to do. And then on the HR side, we can apply it as well to finding out bullying, racism, sexual harassment, misogyny, discrimination in the workplace as well. Um, And we're now... Literally, I know we're a couple days before Christmas, as we get into 2021 on the precipice of, of uh, broadening and shifting and evolving the corporate positioning to do that and then some as an enterprise data company addressing virtually any functional group within an enterprise to help them figure out through data insights how to protect themselves, but then also promote their business growth at the same time. Probably every functional group you can name, aside from maybe engineering, but marketing, ops, sales, procurement, IT, security, legal, finance, we're going to be touching them all. We're, we're about to make that shift, which is one of the reasons why I joined, because as a marketer, you get to evolve a brand and a positioning beyond just a compliance product or an HR product into something that's an enterprise-wide solution. Uh, that's interesting. So that's what we do, and that's very soon what we are going to be doing as we go into next year. So you're you're actually the company's first CMO, right? Officially, yeah. Yeah. So yes. I mean, it's got to be pretty cool to go in there and build it up. You yeah, know. you were talking about, uh, if I can say this affectionately, kind of the the Godfather grandfather effect, where the next generation comes up and says, "Wow, I can tell you you've learned something in your career. You've been here." Like how how those folks tell you that. Well, I would say to build off of that, um, my perspective is we have uh, three jobs we can choose. To do in our career and we're programmed to do one two or three of them one is just a build job like when i was at cisco whether i'm there or not it's just going to incrementally move the needle when i'm there in terms of what i do um if i get uh if, if i leave or i join it's still going to be fine you're just incrementally building the build and grow jobs as i classify them are startups like you're going to build something functionally from scratch and then you're going to grow it at scale which is what Behavox and the opportunity is for me. And then the third, just for the for the sadists um, who listen to you, are going to be the repair bill grow. Like, they're doing something wrong. You got to go in there and plot it. Um, it's grisly. You reset it and rebuild, and then you grow it at scale. So I've done the repair bill grows, and I've done the build grows, and I'm falling in love, obviously, more with the build grows. And Behavox is a build grow opportunity where you can build a function from scratch. So you know if you're a builder, a creator, or you know if you're a, grow uh, 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 like a curator like I want it all structured and I don't want to inherit a mess then you don't go to the companies like that I've chosen to go to the former so who came up with uh, it sounds like really cool technology mm. who came up with the technology for Behavox our founder um, 
a very unique, cool, wicked smart guy by the name of Erkin. Erkin Adelov. Erkin um, was in London and founded the company. And prior to that, he was a Goldman Sachs analyst, very successful. And he also was um, an analyst there during the not too good, but a lot of bad, ugly time frame in 2008, um, when Wall Street was just getting bludgeoned and then all the regulations started coming down on him even more so after 2008. So we saw a lot of that. And then he, then he was a uh, very successful hedge fund, a partner at uh, GLG, which is one of the largest hedge funds in the world, ran a $2 billion plus dollar, uh, hedge fund very successfully as a partner there. And say what you will about Wolf on Wall Street, all of the um, Gordon Geckos and all, all the folks who just think hedge fund guys are just, I'm just going to be the devil on the shoulder of money, money, money. He had an entrepreneurial spirit to break away from that inertia and start this company because he had seen good, bad, and ugly and said, I have a solution that can actually help with the integrity of that, that finance sector even more than before I did it. So he went off and did this in 2014. The rest is history. The company is now six, seven years old and growing like a weed. That's great. So has there been a big change in the way companies market in this new COVID work from home, socially distanced environment that we're in? There's been an uh, adjustment and an evolution and an adaptation for sure. It's not necessarily a rip and replace uh, paradigm um, shift. Uh, and I'm speaking from B2B. Yeah, I was going to okay, say so you guys are you, B2B. If, if I'm Nike or Disney or Geico or something like that. That's that may be a different answer, but from a B two B perspective, there's been more of an oscillation away from events because you just can't go to these trade shows or industry events or field road shows as much anymore in person. To more of an emphasis on virtual webinar style events and digital marketing. Now, in any any marketer who listens to you will know that their marketing line items in their budget, their big three are going to be events, digital marketing, and analyst relations from a B two B perspective probably in that order in some cases. And uh, events and digital always duke it out for one, too. Um, so you're just tipping the seesaw a little bit more toward digital in this case um, and away from the expensive in-person events because webinars are cheap, free in many cases. Um, and that's that's probably the most fundamental shift. But the, the underlying um, uh, goal of driving demand and pipeline and eventually revenue through uh, solid content marketing, that hasn't changed. In fact, if anything, you just double down on that. So the content marketing is the, uh, it's the pavement that the marketing will, uh, machine will, will run over, and that hasn't changed. So certain parts have, certain parts you're just doing the same, just in a work-from-home environment. What's interesting that uh, I actually reached out to you before we put set up the podcast yeah. because I was looking for someone in marketing That's to help right. me out. That's right. And you hooked up uh, hooked me up with someone that did content marketing and it changed uh, hugely. Um, so you saw an impact with her. A huge impact. Yeah. And we're actually okay. still going through it right That's now. That's great. That's great. You know, because it, like, it's not an overnight thing. Mm -hmm. You know, so we're going That's through and we're changing all of our marketing and using that content uh, that Eileen hooked us up with. And she's amazing, by the way. <laughs> um, but my question is, do you think we're going to go back to those in-person events in the future the way it was before where it's like the huge vegas here we go uh, type thing or is are, are people going to see that hey wait we don't need to spend all that money on these huge events we can do it this way that's a okay so let me answer it this way the short answer is yes but it comes with a caveat and what i mean by that is um there there is no replacement for in-person engagement 
when it comes to marketing and sales. But I will emphasize actually sales more. So if you pick right up the street, RSA, for example, is the largest um, secure, cybersecurity event in the world every year. It happens every February or April. They oscillate between those two months up in San Francisco at the Moscone. They pull in, I believe, 20,000 people, maybe more at this point. Um, all of the business, like all of the deals, all of the meetings, the customer engagement, they don't happen on the trade show, trade show floor. They happen in the hotels, the VIP suites, the mixers, the meeting rooms, the conference rooms you rent out. Those, it is a watering hole moment for the industry to come in and drive uh, pipeline and, and deal acceleration at scale to where that, I think, will never end. But there will be more of a judicious thought process around how much money do I invest in it and how many events I go to if it's not driving the top line. Because those events drive the bottom line because they're the biggest expense. I mean, you, you may spend half a, half a million dollars on a booth at a company the size of Cisco, and then they go do two more booths all around the trade show floor just to, 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 to monop play Monopoly. Right. right. Um, the spend... I think it's given us a chance to reset our thinking as a marketing profession on how we spend money because we are traditionally looked at brand-wise as a cost center when really we should be looked at also as a mutual profit center if we're doing the right thing on account-based marketing, demand gen, content marketing, things like that. Um, and then the last thing I'll say just to kind of add a spin into it globally is um, certain parts of the world, you must be in person. Like you can't just say, hey, in Japan or China or Taiwan or Hong Kong. Yeah, I'll just uh, do a Zoom with you on that. Can I get $8 million for this deal? Like, you're going to have to go over there, right? There's still the, right. the the socialization that will occur. And the same in Europe and the U.S. to an extent, Latin America for sure. But that would be the answer I'd give. Much more qualitative than quantitative. It, there's a chance for adjustment, but I think we'll return to it. We just won't be as reckless as we may have been where we just routinize doing it every year, throwing money at the wall. Yeah. Well, if that makes sense. I RSA is what it's called, right? The, the security. security? Yes. Okay, so I was at, I went to meet a friend of mine, well, now a friend of mine, Corey mm. Hildebrand, who was just on the podcast. Mm. Uh, he's with uh, um, Schwab. Okay. And he's head of security over there, okay. cybersecurity. And uh, I met him in February, and then all of a sudden, boom, COVID hit in March. Mm. And uh, I'm just wondering, I was wondering while you were talking, with all those deals not going down in person this year, because they're not going to be in person That's because right. there's no RSA. That's right. So I wonder if all the companies that have their contracts in place from last year are just going to win that business again because the, there's no in-person going on. I mean, it, it's, it, there has to be a little bit of that going on, I would Oh, uh, for sure. And, I, you know, just from my limited vantage point of knowing the, the ecosystem I play in, uh, it's both. Because if, if the customer service is bad or the lack of customer touch post-sales is bad, then they're, they're not going to renew, if you're a SaaS-based company like us, they're not going to renew to where, man, I wish I had that in-person engagement. Versus if things are going well, yeah, just set it and forget it in yeah. some ways. It'll just keep on propagating itself year to year. Good. Yeah. Um, so it's probably a little bit of both. So it just comes down to you've got to be tight on customer touch, even from a virtual standpoint. That's interesting. Yeah. It could go both better ways, watch out better make sure your customer service is good yeah <laughs> mostly right. in this environment that's right so i think i already know the answer to this but i'm going to ask anyway because i ask pretty much everybody are you a regimented person very very i thought so very. um uh, i am too i get up every morning and i do the same thing and it, it, it sets up for my day you know yeah. i was on the peloton this morning for an hour 
Nice. You know why? Sweating my ass off so I can eat all this great food coming <laughs> off for the next couple, couple of days, days, right? That's right. That's right. You know, but it, it just it, Ed and I were talking about it earlier. It gets the endorphins going, yeah. and I feel so good, and yeah. I can come in here and talk to an old friend of mine yeah. and feel great all day long. Yeah, you're alive. What, yeah. What's What's your regime? Okay. So I know I'm being long-winded with these answers, so I'll, I'll, I have to give you two answers. So pre-COVID post. Pre was similar to you. Up by 4.45, 5.30, somewhere in that time frame, depending on the workout, and all workout done in the morning, get in the car, commute, okay? Um, then be in the office and do your day. And to your point, the endorphins are running so much to where you can think more clearly. Uh, it's just, it's so healthy, right? right? Now that the gyms are closed, um, so basketball to me was a treat. When you and I would play ball, that's my fun workout day. That's Saturday. But Monday through Friday, I hurt myself. And I'm going to push the limits because um, I don't want to I don't want to settle. So now COVID time, because the gyms are closed, I went out and bought some equipment um, and there's space in my garage to do this. So we have a little makeshift gym in the garage and we'll do that in the evenings. We'll try to do it even if we have to have a late dinner right before dinner and then go eat. Um, but I just kind of flipped it on schedule. And then uh, root, routine wise, I actually try to make sure I do nothing on the weekends. I become, I shift from an extrovert to an introvert on the weekends. Um, I shut down Netflix. Uh, I, I don't work out. I let the body just recuperate. I sleep in, all those things. So any day of the week, anyone who knows me, you know at any given time, whether I'm awake or not, working out, working, or just playing. Uh, so I'm very routinized, and frankly, just like you, uh, it's boring, but it allows you to be efficient when you're a busy person running a business like you're doing or me trying to be an operator for a young company that's coming up in like Behavox. You know what uh, this last year has done for me is gave me a newfound love of hiking. Mm. Oh my God. I just, I, I believe that. I just absolutely love it. Every other day I go for a hike and every other yeah. day I ride the Peloton. Good for you. You know, and it's just, it's been so amazing. It's just like that all the bad things that have happened because of COVID there's just as many good things. And yeah. I just I just got to sit there and I Agreed. need to concentrate on the great things. That's right. That's and then right. all the all the bad things just kind of go away. It's it's making lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. And I don't do hiking, and I probably should, um, because there's a lot of people like you who do it, and it's very therapeutic. But I think the magic word you and I are circling around these days, or, or these past few minutes on this part of the, the conversation, is discipline. It's all about discipline. And there are no excuses so if you remember your football coach or I remember football coach or whatever coach, my tennis coach was ferocious too, um, to where there's just no excuses. Yeah. Like, no, don't, don't, don't whine or complain. Like, it's Nike, just do it. And that's it. Yeah. And then you're cool. And once you get that type of mindset and it becomes habitual versus you have to continually tell yourself that, you'll know when it clicks. It, it'll just be habitual. You'll go through withdrawals if you don't do it that way. Yeah. Um, then you're good. I don't care if it's sports, whether it's my company whether it's my marriage, whether it's whatever it is, there's no yeah. excuses. There are no, you just, just do it. Just, Nike, just, just do it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So um, last couple questions here. Hmm. Um, I, I ask everybody, um, what do you have a book or a couple of books that you can uh, turn our listeners on to that uh, you've read over the last year or so that you really were impressed with that you think other people could use? Yeah, I've read a few. I'll, I'll, I'll name these. Um Phil Knight's Shoe Dog is definitely the most entertaining one I've read, period. Like, you don't have to be a sports nut. You could be an Adidas guy over Nike. It doesn't matter. Like, 
business-wise and personal development, it's a great, great, great story. It's so well-written. You you won't put it down. So I'll shoe just say dog. Shoe Dog. Shoe Dog. Okay. It's about the making of Nike okay. as a company. Uh, Phil Knight. And then the other one I'll say is uh, um, uh, Creativity, Inc., which is written by Ed Catmull. Ed Catmull is, you know, the head. He's been had several roles, but the head of uh, Pixar. Um, and it talks about Pixar and the story when Disney um, bought them and all that. But it's less of a business book and more about the theme around iteration. So in other words, um, being efficient about being iterative as you develop something, plan yourself personally, technology, a movie, whatever it is, versus hiding behind, I hope it's good. And you waste all this time, three months later, a year later, okay, here's my final, and then they shoot it down. Now you just wasted all this op cost, right? Opportunity cost. So it's about how you iterate and collaborate to be efficient and make the best at the same time because you're iterating constantly to make it the best possible work that you're creating, whether it's at Avalon, Behavox, or Pixar. So those two are great. And then I would also say David Goggins' uh, Can't Hurt Me, which is, um, it's rated R. I mean, every other word's the F word. But it's it's um, basically about a guy who, you want to talk about someone with no limits, just do it. It's about a guy who um, had a rough upbringing and how he went through Navy SEAL training, Army Ranger training, um, uh, run marathons, triathlons, uh, Ironmans. Any challenge he'll go after, even if it absolutely obliterates him physically. And it's a classic mind over matter uh, book that gives you good lessons around how you work through problems, because that's what we do, especially at our level, is our number one job is solve problems and then practitioner second in the business world. Those are three books I would recommend. Perfect. Yeah. I'm going to download them. I'm an audible <laughs> Tell guy. Tell me if you agree. I'm an audible guy. So yeah, I go too, through and I, when I, when I'm on a long drive or I'm on a hike or something, I, I throw them on and I, I appreciate it. Sure. Um, one of the things that uh, I'm a big fan of the band tool. Yeah. And one of the, one of my favorite lyrics of theirs is all this pain is just an illusion. <laughs> You know, I love it. My uncle once said, pain is weakness leaving the body. Yeah. Just look at it that way. But uh, that's a good saying. I agree. Well, so I can't thank you enough for being here. I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody at the end of the True Ambition podcast. Mm -hmm. So um, like everybody knows, I got sober six and a half years ago. Five years ago, I read this thing in one of the books that says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. Mm. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully mm. and walk humbly under the grace of God. Mm -hmm. um, when I read that, so I've always been ambitious, and most of the people I talk to on the True Ambition podcast are mm. very ambitious people. Okay, mm -hmm. And my ambition back in the day was to get money, get power, get laid, you know, get whatever it was that I wanted for my own uh, selfish needs. When I read that, it kind of changed my perspective. Kind of went back to more of what mom and grandma used to say. That's right. Go out and do the next right thing. My ambitions and my perspective changed that day. My question for you is being where you've been, going through the things that you've gone through, moving forward in your life, what is your true ambition both in your personal life and in your professional life? Okay, so they, they kind of meld. Um, on the professional side, it's a quick answer, which is uh, to embolden, motivate, and, and enable the next generation of marketers. 
Um, so to, to give back like you're doing to like that story you were saying a few minutes ago about being able to share back um, the, the expertise and experiences you've had so that you make the next generation that follows you better. Okay, so simple as that. Marketing can oftentimes get bastardized as a bunch of fluff, a bunch of liberal artists um, going crazy with budgets, and it's very true, and there's frauds in my industry. So I'm more interested in making sure that marketing is respected and taken seriously, and the only way to do it is to have real um, marketing-blooded practitioners that know how to be business operators and then marketing pr practitioners combined. So I, I focus on grooming the next generation as best I can in that mold um, from the marketing profession side. Personally, the deeper one is this. I totally agree with you. When you're a young buck, it's all about going out, having fun, cars, money, all that stuff. But I would say, based on the life story I've shared with you, it is to make every second count, never to be mediocre, and to be um, uh, to ensure that everyone around me understands that that uh, uh, I guess the approach to life in that way. The the thing I'd say anecdotally is this. Um, I think our, our world is hurting um, at risk of sounding political or social. And we need more people that can actually um, have a brokerage between people. And I think my ability, or not my ability, my intent is to make sure I do my part to do that. Yeah, I can't speak for anyone else, but all I can control in my sphere of influence is myself. And then if I can live as a role model that I would have looked up to um, so that my girls can or my wife is proud to be married to me or my family's proud to not disinherit me, things like that, uh, then I will have lived a good life. So it's a really simple, basic, just be a good human type of message is what I would say. That's my true ambition. Everything else will take care of itself if you do that. Sounds like a good legacy to me. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for being here, Neil. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. So, uh, thank you all for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time on the True Ambition Podcast. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I